You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Here he comes. Careful. All clear. That's it. Heart rate stable. If we don't use human DNA now, someone else will. Regulators and politicians, they tear us to pieces. Millions of people are suffering and dying. What are the moral considerations of that? This is illegal. We can go to jail for this. Human cloning is illegal. This won't be human. Not entirely. It's coming out. It's not due for months. It's slippery. It's... <laughs> what was that? A mistake. Here is something completely unique in the world. Tempty. Clive? Clive? Clive! Elsa, get out! It's dangerous! It's growing fast. Days within a matter of minutes. Across the line. What did you expect when you made it? Didn't you have a plan? You can't let her out. Specimens need to be contained. Don't call her that. What's going on? She's become unstable. This is the disaster everyone warns about. A new species set loose in the world. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, of course, co-host, Mr. Mike White. You know, I crossed an owl with a goat and got a real hoot nanny. Mm, very nice. And joining us this week from several different shows, oh, Devour the Podcast, Skeleton Crew, Evil Episodes, Liking It, uh, Direct Video Connoisseur, and even uh, the Insomniacs Playlist, because uh, that's a lot of podcasts, is Miss uh, Jamie Jenkins. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thanks again. for uh, Thanks for having me again. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. And this week, we're talking about the 2009 film from Vincenzo Natale, Splice. Story of a couple of genetic scientists, Elsa and Clive. Not only a couple in the lab, but in life. And the pair are working for a pharmaceutical company, making a new creature that could lead to some new drugs. And that's when they decide time may have come from moving beyond plant and animal DNA to something a little closer to home. Human genes. Through some turns, they end up creating Dren, this chimera creature that blends human and animal traits. And Dren not only grows fast and smart, but uh, also leads to some problems with the couple. Now we're going to get into spoilers on this one. So if uh, you haven't seen Splice, you may want to turn it off and come back. And, uh, you know, because we'll be here waiting for you. So Jamie, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Splice and what did you think? Well, the first time I saw it was in the theater when it came out. I was reviewing it. So uh, that was back when, I think that was back when I was doing Last Blog on the Left with Bo Ransdell, who is now my co-host on Devour. And so we went to, so we both went to see it and then discussed it on our show. I liked it. I, um, working in a lab myself, I 
I always get excited whenever a movie is scientific, usually because I get to see them do a lot of things that I do, although it never fails in movies. Their equipment is far more advanced than the equipment I use in real life labs. They always have like top of the end brand new stuff. And so I watch jealously at that. And then uh, I pick out what they do that they shouldn't be doing, um, which is kind of fun. But this one I thought was a really interesting film because uh, there were some moral quandary going on, uh, which is always fun. And you, Mr. Mike? I saw this one at the theater as well. I think that it played only a couple places around Detroit. I went to see it with a friend of mine who we would generally go see what we considered bad movies, and we hadn't heard anything about this film. I didn't even know that it was a Vincenzo Natale film when we bought the tickets for it. As soon as his name came up on screen, I was like, oh, okay, well, this is going to be different, and sat there and absolutely loved it, and so did the guy that I was with, so it has uh, stood the test of time, too. I just got done watching it again, and every time I watch it, I see something new, pick up something, and absolutely love this one. I think this is the first film we've reviewed where all three of us have seen it in the theater, because I saw it in the theater as well when it came out, and really enjoyed it, and hadn't had a chance to go back and watch it again until I watched it for the show since I saw it in theater. And there is a lot more going on in there than what I remember as sort of this uh, modern uh, Frankenstein story is what sort of uh, hit me the first time I saw it. Yeah, I like what Jamie said as far as the moral quandaries about this film. I mean, there are so many interesting points that it brings up, and I like that you know, you kind of get caught up in it and you want to see what's going to happen but at the same time you're like yeah they really shouldn't be doing this i mean the whole idea of playing god is right here center stage in this film and i think that they handle all the topics really well that they kind of uh, let you see what things uh, what things might look like if science kind of had the shackles off so let's get into the plot and it starts with um, I don't. It, it might sound a little odd saying this, but the opening credits uh, kind of reminds me of this Fight Club kind of opening of credits with uh, sort of following through the body kind of thing. Uh, a lot of fluids, a lot of veins, things like that. Until we get to our first shot, which is this uh, POV shot, and we don't necessarily know exactly what we're looking at, but that's where we're first introduced to. Uh, to our couple, the scientists, as uh, it appears they're um, trying to do birth of some sort. Yes. Yes! Yeah, first time we get to see Adrian Brody and Sarah Polly, and I have to say right out there that I'm not, not a big Adrian Brody fan, but there are times where he does a great job, and this is definitely one of those. I have yet to see The Pianist of all movies with him in it. I have yet to see that one. I think I was so disgusted by Summer of Sam that he it just anything with him in it has just really kind of turned me off. And I think that's why this was on the bad movie night slate, but... Um, he does a great job in this. I got to give it to him. Yeah, even with his uh, hipster haircut and the, the the car that they're driving, I'm just like, are you kidding me? These guys, if they're working in private sector, they're they're making so much money doing what they're doing. And um, I'm just like, what is with this haircut? And then you find out that the other lab guy is Clive's brother, and I'm like, well, it makes sense. They have matching haircuts. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I I feel the same way you do about Adrian Brody. But um, 
it's like I think I do in the back of my mind, but then I'll see something like this, and I'm like, oh, I don't know why I think that, because I like him here. You know, I think he did a, a good job. And, um, like, in the jacket, he was in the jacket, wasn't he? Not even sure. I just remember the coat. <laughs> that was the prequel. <laughs> well, I guess he didn't leave much of a lasting impression. <laughs> but, yeah, I I think he did great here. And Sarah Polly. I always like her. Oh yeah, and uh, she she does such a wonderful thing with emotion here, where she has, like, she pulls out some maternal instincts, and then you know she, she gets frustrated with with Dren when she reaches like adolescence and starts doing adolescent things, and I mean, I just think that she's all over the place, but every single emotion she throws at you is completely believable. It all feels very true. Right. And I like that when it comes to the pacing, the plotting of this film, I mean, so much of this film resembles like a life cycle. You know, our first act is very much the younger creature. Then we get into the middle act with that adolescence and then into the final act with the maturity and everything. And it just makes sense the way that we follow along the life of this creature and that we get these you know, there are a lot of really good moments in here where you don't necessarily know what the hell is going to happen. And that it starts off fairly creepy. And especially with the early creatures that they have, kind of the trial runs, the Fred and Ginger, all this kind of stuff. You don't necessarily know where this movie is going to go. And I really kind of appreciate that. At least for me, like I said, I had zero knowledge of this film going in. So I really didn't know that there was a Dren until she finally shows up. And then again, I didn't know what she was going to be like during this film. Yeah. And the, um, <laughs> Fred and Ginger look like what oh. Gina Davis squeezed out in the fly. Is what oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I always think of. Um, but at the same time, you know, Sarah Polly's like, he's so cute, you know, and then you start looking at him and watching him move around. I'm like, well, they are kind of cute, you know? And then when Dren is first born, you're like, I love the, 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 um, how you travel through emotions with them. Because when Dren's first born, I'm like, oh, it's so cute. Don't hurt it. You know, and then later on, I'm like, oh, no, it's dying. Save it. And then, you know, she gets all adolescent and you're like, oh, I just want to smack her. And then like at the end, when we get to the end and then you're just like, oh, kill it. So it's um, it's I love movies that can force me to. Uh, just I'm, I'm in there. I'm in there with them. And you, you force me to change my mind about things and to to just play with my emotions. And that's when I really enjoy a film is when you drag me into it. Fred and Ginger always remind me of the brain bug from the end of Starship Troopers. <laughs> just <laughs> Yeah. You're some sort of big, fat, smart bug, aren't you? But they've been created as a pair in order to create these uh, pharmaceuticals for the the company that they work for and they uh the, the thing that's interesting when we talk about their first creations versus the dren creation is that i think there's a part of us that can accept the idea that you can create these creatures that are, they don't appear to have higher function and what i mean by that is the fred and ginger characters are just they they don't have faces we we don't get that they're you know have some higher higher thought or something like that. So that seems to be perfectly fine. Like they don't have a problem creating these creatures, but then we get into this conundrum of, well, 
now we're bringing in human uh, elements, now it gets trickier and sort of the philosophical questions that are around that issue. Right, and that's when the pharmaceutical company starts getting starts to question too, which it's hard to make a pharmaceutical company question when you're looking at, you know, because they present them when they want to first start working with human genes, and they're like, nope, 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 we can't do that. And they're like, but this could be a huge medical breakthrough, you know, which to a pharmaceutical company is just dollar signs. And, uh, but they actually draw the line. They're like, nope. Um, so it's it's interesting to me that you have these scientists here, especially one like Adrian Brody, who is, or Clive, who wants to start a family. So he's like a family man or wants to be one. And Sarah Polly, of course, there's a lot of allusion to her having you know family issues and issues with her mom on her own. So she's not really keen on starting a family. But they're the ones who want to like go ahead with this, particularly Sarah Polly and the pharmaceutical companies like, nope, so I I think that's kind of interesting because usually the, the company on the whole is the one with no heart. Please, if we don't use human DNA now, someone else will. La passion. C'est ça la jeunesse. Look, we'd love to go there. Shoot for incredible medical breakthroughs. Of course we would. You put a viable livestock product on the shelves. Then we will talk about a 20-year plan to save the world. Right now, we need to start phase two. And you are the only ones who can do it. Right. Yeah, I think that, like, in the schema of movie villains, like, there's probably Nazis, maybe terrorists, and then pharmaceutical companies, like, right under them. (laughs) Or they might have beaten out, like, ISIS at this point. I'm not sure, so... (laughs) So they create the two, Fred and Ginger, and they show them off, and they have the the question of what do we do with these things, and then trying to go to the next level with the company, as you're saying. There's this back and forth between them, and the thing that's interesting that I see is this film, much in the same way that Eraserhead is about fear of fatherhood and, and all of that stuff, I get a real sense that this movie, although it does have these uh, horror elements and creature elements, that ultimately it becomes a relationship drama and them trying to negotiate out what their relationship is. If they weren't having creating this creature in the lab that eventually they treat back and forth, I would say they, they kind of go back and forth on this in terms of uh, treating it as their child or not their child and, and and trying to keep a distance at times. It feels very much like some sort of drama that you would have with just uh, just a couple kind of talking about, okay, well, where are we and what are we trying to do? And, you know, should we still be together? Should we have kids? What does that look like? And that's, that's what I find uh, really interesting in here as well, beyond the obviously biotech philosophical questions. So as you said, Jamie, I mean, we see Clive's brother. So obviously, and he works side by side with them. You see the relationship. They seem to have a pretty darn good relationship, both as coworkers and as brothers. But there is this whole question of Elsa and what kind of looms over her and this whole idea of her mother and everything. And really for me, this movie brings to the forefront the idea of nature versus nurture because they control the nature 
100%, like down to the genetic level. So this whole movie is like, what do those genes have to do versus what do Clive and Elsa and the surroundings that they give Dren have to do with anything? And just to see the effects of that, and the, especially the whole idea of Elsa slowly kind of becoming her mother. How much can you get away from being the people that raised you? I mean, that's like this horrible cycle that we probably all are in and that we're all desperately trying to break out of as far as I don't want to grow up to be my mother and father. And I think I would be hard pressed to find anybody at least of my friends that would say, I'm going to grow up to be exactly like my mom and dad. They were perfect. I doubt that very much that I would hear that. So we really could see Elsa turning into her mother and continuing that cycle of the bad things that had happened to her. She then gets to inflict on Dren even more so, especially because Dren is purely their scientific creation, which I think gives them even more leave to do whatever the hell they want because they don't have the societal taboos of, you know, this is really our daughter, even though there is pieces of them or pieces of Elsa inside of her. Yeah. Plus no one really even knows she's, she exists. So there are no, there are no consequences as far as like this, as far as society goes for that. And notice how many times, how many times do we get the statement from Elsa? My mother never used to let me this. And so, like, you know, my, never, my, I, here's a doll, you know, this was my doll. I wasn't allowed to play with her, so I had to hide her, but I'm going to let you play with her. My mother never used to let me wear, wear makeup, so I'm going to, you know, put makeup on you. So she is trying really, really hard to do the exact opposite of what her mother did. And uh, one other favorite, uh, when you were talking about the nature of it, and as far as how they controlled the genes, one of my favorite lines of this film is where... Elsa's, uh, where she, they, okay. He says that she, maybe she wants to eat meat. And she's like, well, she doesn't eat meat. And, you know, there's nothing predatory within her. Like none of, none of her animal traits are predators. Basically we didn't give her any predatory skill or predatory traits. And he's like, well, there's the human element. And I love that line. I love it. Because, yeah, I mean, we're humans are the biggest predators that there are. So I thought that was pretty brilliant. And uh, I also love the scene where she has – where Dren has the fever, and they're trying to give her the ice bath. And all of a sudden, Clive jumps in and starts to drown her. And then it turns out that she has amphibious lungs, and she starts breathing. And then so you get this – Sarah Polly's like, you saved her. And he's like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was trying to do the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> which I think is fantastic because um, you, you know we all know what he was trying to do, and it kind of backfired on him. But um, as far as she was concerned, I mean, and then the whole time that scene is going on, though, I'm thinking of the implications it would have on their relationship, because if he had succeeded in killing Dren at that point, what would have happened to their relationship? Because at that point, Sarah Polly was attacked, was so attached to Dren. It's like if I'm, I was trying to imagine like what I would do if Brian suddenly went nuts and killed one of my cats or something like that. I mean, it just can you recover from something like that? You know, can your relationship recover? But it didn't happen. But then later on, something else happens, which I don't think their relationship could necessarily recover from. <laughs> so they're well, put through the test through this whole thing. 
And then there's all of the humanizing when she gets past, like, basically the raptor stage. Because when we see, and it's small, it doesn't have any arms, just kind of has these legs and his head. It's kind of walking around. Looks kind of like Ed 209 in Robocop or something. (laughs) And um, she starts putting her in a dress and giving her dolls and, and all of these very humanizing things. And it, it it must be hard to try and if you take it from the angle of, of her, it must be very hard to try and balance this because there are animal aspects of her and there are these human aspects of her. And they're obviously trying, or she, Sarah Polly's character, Elsa's obviously trying to push these human traits because she wants even though she keeps kind of vacillating on this, she wants to have a child and sees this as their child and wants to treat her in that manner and not so much a detached scientific experiment. Right. And of course, I mean, there is a part of her in there. So in a way it kind of is her child, even though Clive is unaware of that until the moment when he realizes but which is also another powerful moment, I think. Um, this film is just full of them. It's full of them, and I think that they're all handled so incredibly well that it's just—I uh, don't know. I mean, I—it's so—it has so much more depth than I ever expected it to. I've always been curious. You know, their names, obviously, Elsa and Clive, are kind of nods back to Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and the actors that played uh, Doctor Frankenstein. <laughs> And the bride slash uh, Mary Shelley. The publishers did not see that my purpose was to write a moral lesson. The punishment that befell a mortal man who dared to emulate God. It was Elsa versus something like, I don't know, Valerie or whoever played um, Elizabeth, um, Henry Henry Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein's uh, spouse in that. Because... It puts them at a weird position if you are to do like a one-to-one. I mean, Elsa is, you know, who plays the creature is basically Dr. Frankenstein's, you know, creation. But at the same time, it's interesting because she also plays Mary Shelley, who was Dr. Frankenstein's creator in a way. So you have this kind of interesting play as far as who's in charge. And it seems to me throughout the film that really more than anything, it feels like Elsa is the dominant force in the relationship. And I don't know if you guys agree or disagree with that, but to me, it always feels like he is the one who's going to lose the argument when it comes to their power structure. His brother even says as much, you know, when they're sitting at the table after his brother discovers Dren and they're sitting at the table talking, he's just like, you know, tell her no, try it for once, you know. <laughs> um, so it is clear, I mean, we have the brother's point of view there, who spends a lot of time with them in the lab, and assuming outside of the lab as well, um, that his point of view is that she gets everything she wants, and Clive never tells her no. So I think you're absolutely right in that. So they're constantly hiding her. They're putting her in the basement, they're moving her over here, they're moving her over there, and the thing that they should be focusing on is their two creations before that, which they have to present at the shareholders meeting. And <laughs> the uh, shareholders meeting goes about as wrong as it could possibly go because 
they weren't minding the store and found out that uh, one of them changed their sex leads to a big fight uh, in the glass cage up on the stage. And what I write down is a Gallagher-like blood spray onto the uh, front audience. Nice. Front row of the audience there. Which and his brother had been trying to tell him, you know, he's like, I've been running all these tests, the estrogen levels have dropped. I mean, he's told him, and they're still just not on top of it. They're not paying attention. But did you guys think it was hilarious that the audience is like up and running and screaming? Like, I'm like, it's not King Kong, you know, <laughs> these things are going at each other, but I, they're, you know, I don't think you're in any danger, but they're just like, ah. <laughs> Well, I mean, like, also, like they just watched the brain explode in <laughs> in a Cronenberg film, you know. <laughs> well, we'll also consider that this is the first time we're led to believe by the reaction of the audience. This is the first time they've seen these things. So well, that's true. Yeah. So not only is it weird that they're wow, look at the, oh, this is so weird. Like, look at these things. But then when that happens, it's like even freakier because it's not like it's you know, two dogs fighting or something. We're like, you know, as horrible as dog fighting is, people go, okay, I can understand two dogs fighting, but what the hell are these two things, you know? Well, and I guess that's true, and then you don't know, if they're doing that, what else are they going to do? And so let me get yeah. out of the way. Um, but I, What kind of exotic <laughs> disease am I going to get when I get sprayed off by the blood of these <laughs> things? <laughs> of course, I always think that somewhere in the back of the auditorium, Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Ian Malcolm is sitting there just going... Yeah, nature found a way. Right. <laughs> they were so they were so excited by the fact that they could. They didn't stop to think if they should. Exactly, which sounds like could could be the line on the poster. I mean, that is them to a T throughout this whole movie. They seem so blinded by the money or the fame or the power or just I guess it is the power as far as what they can do, what they can create. They just want to create for the sake of creation and they don't necessarily stop and think about it, which I think is a lot of parents' problem. Yeah, well yes. and that's a good point too, because I think there are a lot of parents out there that maybe they can, but should they? Should they, yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to get a license to own a dog or to go fishing but you don't necessarily have to have one to have a kid. Not yet, anyway. But in my world, <laughs> when I become emperor... There's a rigorous battery of tests. <laughs> exactly. And Sarah Polly would not qualify in this instance. But she's highly and, educated. Don't you want highly educated people having kids? I don't want crazy ones. And probably not Adrian Brody, either, considering... Uh, you know, uh, what, how he... I don't know. I don't, he loses his grip a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So after the um, the shareholders meeting run amok, they end up taking Dren to her farm, her family farm. And this is the thing that's interesting. There's a line in here that is kind of like a throwaway. Like, I didn't notice it the first time I thought. But he's kind of amazed that she has this place. Like, he doesn't know about it. Now, they've been together for a while. We're led to believe they live together. But yet he doesn't know this aspect of her life, which to me says that there's a lot of secrets being kept between them as the subtext is what I get as they take Dren to this uh, barn and this uh, family farm, I guess, out in the middle of nowhere in the winter. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder how good of a couple are they. 
Yeah, I think this is probably the biggest mistake that they do by taking Elsa back to this location. She probably thinks that she can handle it, but this is kind of the scene of the crime, as it were, and it's really bad. She starts to lose it here. I mean, especially the whole thing with Dren when she wants a pet cat. I mean, this becomes really... I mean, for a horror movie... The, the whole idea of Dren wanting a cat becomes the most intense part for me. This whole thing, when they get to the barn, basically, I see this as dealing with a teenager. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. And it's just obstinate teenage behavior. She can't speak, so she communicates through Scrabble tiles. And then there's this whole... Um, sort of reverse Oedipus complex, as I put down, where um, instead of it being the guy falling in love with her with his mom, it's the daughter falling in love with her dad. And she's very enamored with Adrian Brody and at the same time uh, Clive, and at the same time she's not too happy with mom. And the whole, I want the cat, and then she kills the cat, <sighs> I saw is like a big fuck you, mom. Oh, for yeah. sure. I mean, it's just like she had the exact same look on her face that every teenager has had at one point or another or that or your like your cat will have. Like if your cat's going to push a glass off a table and you're like, no, and then it just looks at you and smacks it off anyway. It's like, oh, you little shit. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, it was so defiant. And that's the thing is adolescents will be defiant to the point that it ends up hurting them because she ended up losing the pet that she really wanted just so she could prove a point, just so she could hurt her mother, you know, in quotes there. Um, and also hurt me because, um, <laughs> I mean, as soon, let's face it. As soon as the set, as soon as you see the cat come on screen, you know, something bad's going to happen because they never have a cat in a movie where something bad doesn't happen in, in a, in a film like this. And so I'm already just cringing. And then when we see her cuddling it and wanting to keep it, I start to calm down a little bit. I'm like, Oh, okay. Well maybe she just really wants the kitty. And then she takes it away from her. And then when she brings it back, I'm like, Oh hell, here we go. <laughs> so like I was waiting for it and it just, it really just struck me. Um, at, at an emotional level. You know, I love you, don't you? You're a part of me. And I'm a part of you. I'm inside you. I have something for you. What I got. You can keep her. Why not? It's nice to have a pet. because I animal animal interestingly animal violence really bothers me um you know and you guys know me you know what I you know what I talk about all the time and um that stuff doesn't bother you like horror films don't bother me unless there's animal violence and then it just sort of punches me in the heart so I think that was a a powerful moment there plus then immediately I mean she hauls off and slaps her as a parent would want to do when a teen is that adamant about being a little brat and then of course she's got something that most teenagers don't have and that's a tail with a deadly stinger (laughs) (laughs) Um, which i think most parents are glad about (laughs) 
but and that's a, that's a scary moment right there. I mean, it's because she could, if she really wanted to, uh, Elsa could be done at that moment. So that's yeah. kind of a frightening thing. So she ties the scorpion girl to the table and decides that uh, that stinger's got to go. Which yeah, which is oh god. The the interesting thing about that, and here's one of the quandaries uh, to me anyway, because the interesting thing is the interesting thing about that whole thing is that Clive comes home and discovers what she's done, and he is horrified. By the fact that she's basically mutilated her uh, by removing this the stinger. What are you doing? But I had to. Jesus Christ. Elsa. She's become unstable. She killed the cat. She almost killed me. So you cut off her tail. You any closer to finding the protein? What does that have to do with anything? You haven't because you're working with tissue that's been dead too long. You don't know that she has. Of course she does. She has everything Ginger and Fred had and more. Where are you going? I'm going to solve this thing. I'm going to put things right. And then she ends up being horrified at what she's done a little bit later on. At the same time, though, there's a part of me going, yes, do it. Chop it, chop it off. So I'm I'm kind of torn, you know, uh, because the human and the human aspects of her tell me, you know, no, don't do that, you know, because it's don't mutilate her. Now, you know, no one deserves mutilation, but at the same time, it's a dangerous thing, and she has already proven that she has no problem throwing her weight around. So, you know, I, that's one where I can't I can't even make that call if if I think that she what she did is wrong or not. I can't. It just depends on what's happening in on the screen. <laughs> you know? Oh, she just seems so she being Elsa just seems so unhinged at that point. And that is one of those moments that you're talking about Sarah Polly, just giving that performance. I mean, I am buying it, you know, and I can kind of see her point, but at the same time, she's just nuts. Oh, well, she in is, that yeah. scene. Oh, she's God. gone over and the that, edge. She has. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's turned into almost like, um, uh, I don't know. She's it's like, she like a, Sybil's mother. I keep yeah. expecting her to say like, you know, Oh, Sybil's mother. Excellent. That is excellent. Um, Oh my. And now that brought up a whole, that conjured a bunch of disturbing images right there. But I keep <laughs> expecting her to say, I have a very specific set of skills. <laughs> 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 and it's like, you know, so that's, it's truly frightening there, which I love because two minutes before that you were frightened for Elsa when she's got the stinger at her throat. And then in the very next scene, you're frightened of her because she has completely lost her mind. So it's, you know, another one of those really powerful moments. One of the things I really like about the film, too, is this whole idea of as a teenager, as a child, all this kind of stuff, the importance that it is to identify with your parents. And really, Dren cannot ever identify fully. She cannot identify with humans, really. I mean, the whole idea of the doll that um, Elsa gives her, and that the doll is differently shaped than what Dren is, and that you know, the face is different, everything is different, and her drawing the pictures of Clive and Elsa just it just kind of tears the heart out of me because it's like, you'll always be different. You are, you know, it's the thing that parents always say, oh, you're unique. You are just so special. In this case, it's 100% true. She is unique. There is only one Dren ever. So it's just, you know, you you 
my heart anyway goes out to her in those moments where it's like, yep, you are different than everybody else, but you are beautiful for it. Oh, for sure. And I mean, like fast forward, if things had stayed the, the, the way that they were, although honestly, how could they, what were they expecting the outcome to be? Like when they were lying in bed at night, and this, you know, thoughts of what they were doing were going through their mind. What exactly were they thinking for down the road? Now, I know that Elsa was under the impression because she was aging so quickly, she was growing so quickly that she was going to be, you know, her life cycle wouldn't be that long. And so she probably figured that wasn't something they were going to have to deal with. I, I honestly don't think she was thinking about the future. But if she, if Dren had continued to live, she could never be a part of society. She could never live on her own, take care of herself. You know, this, it's, it's just not possible because she, it's, there's no way. And so it's like, so you're thinking the whole, what are you going to do with her? You know, what you're now attached to her and, you know, she's a part of you and you didn't really think this through, did you? (laughs) Which is another, just a set of horrible emotions. Again, bad parents didn't think it through. There you go. How are you going to save for her college fund? Right. You're driving that piece of shit car. <laughs> he started his bank accounts yet. Have we done that, honey? We got to do that, honey. What's that for, Dot? That there's for his orthodonture and his university. Now, you soak his thumb and I die, and you might get by without the orthodonture and won't knock a thing off the university. <laughs> right. You take that diaper off your head. You put it back on to your sister. So you know that um, the moment when they think that it's over... Uh, when it's really not, but that, that initial moment there has, there's this, there must be the sense of relief that kind of washes over them, even though they loved her. It's like, Oh, well that's kind of taken care of for us. Yeah. And that scene really reminds me of like a pet that has died, not a daughter, you know? So it feels off to me when they're doing that. It feels like, yeah, old yeller is done. We gotta, we gotta bury the pet rather than the emotions just seem wrong to me at that point, but in a good way. I mean, it's not the movie is wrong, but just they seem off, which I think is the perfect thing. Yeah. Cause I think, um, I th- yeah. I mean, I think at that moment, even though they're sad for her, they have to be, you know, like a, like a whew, <laughs> because as much as they did love her, there was a whole huge set of issues that came along with having her, um, not to mention, uh, there could be some laws involved. I mean, they, they were looking at some really daunting things. It, it's the kind of, uh, I don't, it, it almost reminds me of a situation in which you have, like, say, for instance, you have an elderly parent and they're just really, they're really, really sick for a long time and they're in a lot of pain and there's nothing you can do for them. And so at the, when the moment comes, when it's finally over for them, you miss them and you, and you love them. And that's a part of you that you'll never get back. And it's a horrible experience. But at the same time, it is a relieving experience because you know that that part is over for them. So it's kind of like you have dual emotions going on, you know, and then you can feel guilty for being happy about not happy, but, you know, um, for being relieved about it then you have this this guilt on top of that but so there's just all these things embroiled and i kind of think that's what they were going through there and i think then why the, the burning everything was just 
we'll just get get rid of it all, you know, and kind of like a purge. Yeah, because they still have to keep her secret all the way up to that point. Uh, but she doesn't stay there too long, so uh, I guess maybe they uh, don't ought to check the vital signs on their um, hybrid <laughs> child to figure out exactly when she's dead or not. Well, I like that that plays back into two things that have happened in the movie before. We thought that she was going to die when Clive is there, you know, holding her under the water and, and drowning, quote-unquote, her, and we have that, and then we mix that with the gender fluidity of Fred and Ginger becoming Fred and Fred, basically. Fred and Wright said Fred. I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. So we have both of those coming together with this gender fluidity of Dren now switching genders and becoming being able to go from having an Electra relationship with Clive to now having an Oedipal relationship with Elsa. And again, another stage of her life cycle with uh, not only with the kind of more masculine gender that she has, but then with the wings and everything. And it just all of a sudden we're into a whole other thing. I mean, just the stakes have raised so much with like just in a few moments of time in this film. Right when the boss shows up, <laughs> I mean, talk about timing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. David Hewlett, who we saw last in Cube, getting to show up in this one and just being an absolute dick in this film, which I absolutely love. He plays a dick really well. All right. Let's see it. Well, what did you tell him? I didn't have to tell him much. I think I'm stupid. The samples you gave me had human DNA content. They didn't come from Ginger and Fred. They came from something else. Something that's still alive. I think you did this on my watch. Now, let's see this thing. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to anyone. And where is it? And what I just thought of is too bad they didn't name uh, Fred and Ginger Adam and Eve because then they could have called them Adam and Steve when they... <laughs> <laughs> as long as you don't sell them pizza, we're okay. <laughs> Hey, we're not in Indiana. <laughs> this podcast will be banned in Indiana. <laughs> yeah, in that moment that you're talking about, uh, when we have the whole, I mean, I guess it's sort of like um, a, um, like a pupil state, or not really. I mean, she sort of maybe goes into like a sort of hibernation, um, maybe sort of vital signs. Maybe they didn't think they're worrying like maybe they tried well check them i guess as best as they can for a creature that they really don't know that much about um and then she sort of uh, goes through a metamorphosis um and that's when i think it becomes really frightening and everything is so quick paced uh right then it's like it just sort of hits the end and then goes full steam ahead and you're just being battered with all of this stuff happening and it's all very horrible. And, and it's like, God, I just went through a whole lot of emotional stuff with the rest of this film. And I've been ripped from one end to the other with my emotions. And then you hit me with this freight train of horrific events right at the end. Oh yeah. This thing moves so fast. I just rewatched the last 15 minutes of the film and it just, it's breakneck with the pace and everything and just, uh, but it works so well because there would be that confusion. I mean, David Hewlett buying it, Clive's brother buying it, just all this like 
crazy terror kind of stuff. And then when Dren rapes Elsa, I mean, that's the only thing that I can consider it is a rape. I mean, that is just, oh God, it's just even more horrific that she was this strange yet beautiful creature just a few minutes ago. And now she's this just uh, guttural, you know, grunting and and finally learns to speak and what she says that she wants inside of Elsa I mean it's like oh god just man I mean those for those moments where it was tearing the heart out of me feeling so bad for Dren now it's just like my gut is just churning like oh I can't believe this is going on but at the same time it's like what else could happen this was a perfect way to to go about things and you were talking about the Fred and Ginger creatures reminding you of the brain from Starship Troopers. This whole thing with her reminded me of like Manhunter and the dragon and all of that stuff. Like all of the oh, stuff yeah. that Dollar Hyde talks about and the dragon and, and everything. And I was just like, I'm getting like these, like at least in my own head, you know, because I don't think there's any reference to it in the film at all. But just all this stuff about like a dragon and the, you know, like that whole corollary of him talking about the, you know, the beauty and the, you know, the brutality of this creature. Before me, you were a slug in the sun. You are privy to a great becoming and you recognize nothing. You're an ant in the afterbirth. Is your nature to do one thing correctly? Tremble. But fear is not what you owe me. No lounge. You and the others. You owe me all. What's funny, because we're going to be talking about Alien 3 in a couple months, and in one of the rejected Alien 3 scripts, basically the alien has sex with Ripley and pretty much does the same thing as Dren by using its tail as the device to penetrate Ripley. So it's, it's kind of weird how these echoes come back, because you could consider, I think they even call the alien a dragon in alien three when in the one that finally came out so yeah it does seem to have some some connections there as far as far as the rape with the tail kind of thing and i'm sure dollar hide would absolutely love that so after she pops out of the grave picks up the boss drags him up to a tree <laughs> he's kind of hanging out there our old friend as you said um this leads to uh the ending where they're trying to basically uh, let's go back to the old uh, Frankenstein story, where Dr. Frankenstein, of course, has to try and kill his own creation. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And if, if oh, it kills me when Elsa pauses um, before bringing down the rock. Um, just long enough for Clive to be on the receiving end of that tail stinger. I'm like, if you had moved a little bit faster, you, know, <laughs> you could have... You, could have fixed it or you could have saved him but um it's just like that that whole that whole bit right there you know the elsa's being raped clive comes running in does the stabby thing and then um but elsa gets out from under and she's okay and she starts to bring down the rock and she just stops for a second and i'm like don't do it don't stop don't stop (laughs) and and then of course uh clive gets it and it just i'm like ah like, damn it. <laughs> but then I'm thinking, what what do you guys think they would have been okay after all of that? Like w- would their relationship have survived that anyway? I really don't think so. It felt like they were pretty much over after 
the way that Dren and his relationship went, um, and Clive's relationship. So, I don't know. I mean, but they they did have that discussion, um, Elsa and Clive, where it felt like they were kind of coming together. You know, I don't know if it was tit for tat as far as the mutilation. It was equal out to the, you know, uh, the uh, Electra sex kind of stuff, or, you know, I don't know how those things balance out, but it felt like maybe they were going to be okay, but we'll never find out. And we've got that great ending, at, you know, that really kind of ties things together. And I don't know about you guys, but I kind of saw, you know, and I could be completely off base here. Like for me, this whole film is about relationships and families and all this kind of stuff. And I always kind of saw David Hewlett as this kind of stand in father figure. And then the Simona Mancuso, Oh, sorry. Make Okay. I, I apologize, Simona. Um, I see her as kind of the stand in mother figure. And for me, the mother kind of wins at the end. Ah, yeah, I can see that. I don't think that their relationship would have survived this situation because First off, there's the whole secret of the barn and everything. Mm-hmm. And there's so much that he doesn't know that she's been holding back. And then when he finds out that she used her DNA to make the creature without telling him, then that just seems like just another betrayal on top of it. So it just seems like all the betrayals are just adding up and has led to this bad situation. And I seriously doubt that if everything would have ended okay, they would have been like, okay, I can still deal with you. I think... <laughs> He would have been like, you're crazy. Like, why can't you, like, you're going to need some serious couples counseling. I mean, it's just. (laughs) I don't even know if any counselor would be equipped (laughs) to deal with that. It's like, where do you find a counselor like that? Yeah. So let me get this straight. Uh, You created this creature with your DNA and you didn't bother to tell your significant other. Uh, No, I I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. There's really nothing I can do for you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Have you forgiven Caroline for her affair? Look, it was a long time ago. It's over. I'm fine about it. I just don't want to talk about it. Well, then let me ask you something. What do you want from the marriage now? I want to stop talking about it. Look, the truth is I want nothing. I have everything I need. I'm actually a very content person. What a liar. You're so unhappy you can hardly breathe. And I feel it in every gesture and every silence. And I'm miserable. How can we both be in the marriage and I'm miserable and you're content? Luck? Yeah, I really think this ended the only way that it could, and uh, it's, it's a sad situation for everyone involved. But I guess it's sort of a they brought this on themselves. You know, this is what happens when you make decisions like these, and there are consequences. Not even necessarily lawful consequences, because there clearly weren't, but there are life consequences. And I really think that this is the only way it could have ended, and. I love it for that, though. I, th- I think it the whole thing plays out beautifully. And I even really love the prologue that we get with Elsa at the back at the pharmaceutical company. Um, that seems like a very Elsa decision to make. I totally believe that. Yeah. Can we talk about that ending ending? Go for it. Yeah, that whole thing with her meeting in the office, and you don't quite exactly know kind of where it's going until she stands up and we see that she's pregnant you're just like yeah uh yeah that's uh that's i guess the um the aftermath as you were saying from the uh attack 
Of course, we are extremely excited that you're willing to take us to the next stage. Especially in light of the personal risk. I think the figure we've come up with is very generous. You can never speak of this to anyone. Now, I do wonder, though, there was a scene earlier where we see Clive and Elsa having sex. And I do, so I do wonder, you know, is there a chance that that's actually Clive's baby? And she was already pregnant before the Dren incident. Um, You know, so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe, I mean, I, I presume that as far along as she is in her pregnancy and for them to be giving her as much money as they are and, and this whole deal that they have set aside that they've probably done tests or something and they can, they probably know. But I'm left wondering, you know, um, what happens if she goes to give birth and it is actually just a baby? I'm actually kind of amazed that by this far along, because we get the feeling that Dren was created in a matter of days, <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem like it took that long. That she hasn't been like, you know, gutted like a fish by this point by the creature that's supposedly growing inside of her. Well, that's funny because, uh, right, like, I think it may be her last line, Elsa's last line when she says, you know, what's the worst that could possibly happen? Yeah, keep, that is the last line. I keep picturing a, like, a fish people Lovecraftian birth, you know, where the, um, uh, the Innsmouth fish people just come ripping out of of the human woman. That's what I'm picturing. It's just like, oh, uh, because uh, you don't know what and what that is. And if it is one of, uh, like, if it is another Dren creature or something, even it'd be then a, a hybrid Dren human creature. You have no idea what it will end up looking like. I'm like, I don't, you might not make it through that birth. <laughs> you, know? yeah. you have no idea what's going to happen. There's a whole other uh, implied horribleness that could well, be awaiting her well look at it this way okay dren was created out of her dna and then then has been impregnated by that creature so it's another dose of that dna so i mean you want to talk about inbreeding oh my god oh, yeah. yeah that, that just seems like it would be even worse it's kind of like brundlefly when he wants to create brundle family i don't know why i keep dragging the fly into this <laughs> But um, I guess in a sense that, you know, there's this could be a bit of body horror, you know, at least by the time Elsa gets done. Well, I mean, I get the feeling from watching this and and I know that in the back of my mind when I'm looking at it, I'm going, oh, you know, Canadians. Right. Um, but I do get the feeling that this is Cronenberg body horror at times. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think that's why I keep making that connection, too, because there are a lot of things about it that, that remind me of Cronenberg. And I didn't realize, uh, watching this, that this was Canadian until the brother at the very end said, sorry, you know, when, he, when, he, when he brought David Hewlett by. He's like, oh, sorry. And I was like, oh, Canadian. Oh, yeah, we stopped by Timmy's eh, on the way, and uh, we, we, we got a double-double for you. So there you go, eh? See, I just kept thinking of Adam McGoyan films while I was watching this, so just kidding. I, I could see that this would be like a hybrid of Adam McGoyan and um, Cronenberg. Cronenberg, yeah. 
that would be a weird hybrid. Like I can picture like the glasses on Cronenberg's face, but then with Adam McGoin's chin or something, that'd be kind of horrific. Talk about a chimera. Yeah. <laughs> we, now, if we can just throw some guy Madden in there, we'd be all set. <laughs> And we're going to take a break and play an interview with the director and co-screenwriter of Splice, Vincenzo Natale, after these important messages. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. Uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, (laughs) horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. (laughs) I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, Yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies, every Tuesday.
Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. Cures rickets, polio, conjunctivitis, AIDS. AIDS. Let's just, let's just go hog wild. Being in the car accident, you just <laughs> use a little bit and you'll be fine. Yeah, rub it on your car and yourself. <laughs> It'll fix your car and your bones. <laughs> Try this special trick to get out of traffic tickets with Rick Simpson oil. Rub it on the cop. He'll just go away. <laughs> <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. The very kernel of Splice came from a thing called the Vacanti Mouse, which was an MIT experiment wherein um, I believe they were attempting to create a synthetic human skin. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting. Uh, synthetic human cartilage. And, um, but what was striking about the experiment was that it looked as though uh, the mouse had a human ear growing on its back. And uh, in fact, what it was, was this um, armature that was beneath the mouse's skin on which they were attempting to grow cartilage that could be um, transplanted into a human being. So it was a very powerful, uh, surrealistic image. And the mouse also had a, a vulnerability to it that really affected me. And and so I just knew that this was territory I'd be interested in exploring. and um, And that's where it began. How did it go from that to what it ended up being? Well, it was a 12-year process. <laughs> wow. So it, it didn't happen overnight. It began actually as a short film um, that I wrote with Antoinette Terry. And then when that didn't happen, uh, we decided that the story was better served as a feature anyway. So we wrote the first draft of the script. I remember um, it was finished on Valentine's Day of 1998. And subsequently, we released the film in 2010. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> so good thing has come to those who wait. But it was, it was a long, twisted journey. It almost got made years before. Um, it came quite close to being made in the early 2000s. So what, was, what were some of the causes to the delays? Well, it was always going to be an expensive movie because the creature was not the kind of creature that hides in the shadows. It was uh, a character, a prominent character in the story. And then um, also the kind of thing I wanted to do was maybe a little outside the bounds of what technologically was possible at the time, uh, or it would have been very expensive to do it at that time, the way we did it. And I also think that the science hadn't really entered the popular consciousness enough to get people excited about the concept. So uh, it was a great lesson for me. I mean, not just in filmmaking, but also just in terms of the way life works. It really required an alignment of the planets. And, and Splice, to some degree, happened, I think, when it, it needed to happen, when it was ready to happen. When you're writing a script, do you generally tend to have your ideal actors in mind, or do you just have more types, or how does that work for you? You know, it's so funny. I, I really don't think about actors when I'm writing and this always comes up because invariably the first thing people want to know after I hand in a script is, well, who do you see being in it? <laughs> I, I actually tend to put my friends in my scripts so, and people I know. And um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think along those lines. I mean, I, I, we certainly went through an extensive list of actors over the years. And 
I think the first people I thought of were Toby Maguire and Reese Witherspoon. Oh, wow. And that, which is a little bit ridiculous because at the time they would have been very young. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it went through, although strangely, uh, Sarah Polly was always on that list from the, from the get-go. Now, how did uh, Sarah Polly and Adrian Brody kind of come to the project? Uh, we just gave it to them, you know, through their agents. And um, it, was, it was that simple. I mean, I, you know, we considered various people, but they were, they were always high on my list. And uh, they wanted to do it. And it took a little bit of convincing. The way the film was financed um, was as an independent France-Canadian co-production. And the way the international market works is they just want the biggest names possible in terms of box office. And uh, even though I think both Sarah and, in my opinion, Sarah and Adrian qualify as very well-known names of actors who've been in successful films, they, the distributors wanted big names. But I knew that was never going to happen. And I thought Sarah and Adrian were just, just right. And um, again, a number of lucky coincidences conspired to force the issue. And eventually the studio caved and we uh, moved ahead and made the film with them. So I guess kind of along the same lines as far as having actors in mind or people in mind when you're writing this script, how fleshed out was your kind of concept of the Dren character? I would say, and I'm having to cast my memory back, so I hope I'm being accurate in this. I would have to say that it was fairly close to what we ended up doing in principle. I always knew I wanted her to be an angel. Um, I knew that one of the things that excited me about the whole idea of of Dren was that she was an embodiment of a very archetypal, ancient, mythological kind of creature. And um, And I was sort of interested in the notion that maybe those archetypes somehow in some way exist in our consciousness because we're destined to actually bring them to life. And uh, so I, I was, I knew that she had to have wings. That was a, a given. Um, I think I was a little more primitive in my first drawings of her because I gave her feathery wings <laughs> coming out of her back, just like an angel, um, which certainly wouldn't have helped her in attempting to fly because that's a totally impractical design but um so she she did evolve and i had some magnificent uh, conceptual artists work with me uh, in designing her and um she was very much a hybrid of the, the minds the various minds that uh, were involved in her design but uh but yeah so the initial notion of what she was i think remained the same throughout but it the, it was the details that evolved quite radically um through the process yeah, it's interesting you bring up the idea of the angel or or possibly even the demon and, and that whole thing, that archetype being out there in our consciousness. almost reminds me a little bit of like uh, Childhood's End, where these creatures are out there and we have always associated them with demons, but you know maybe they're actually out there to help us. But it's, it's interesting how you kind of came to that idea that these that we would bring these creatures to life. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it just makes sense. And I always thought of Clive and Elsa as being artists as much as they were scientists, uh, which, of course, you know, all the great scientists are artists. They have to be incredibly creative thinkers. And, uh, and, and the idea that these people would be sculpting with DNA was fascinating to me as well. Um, so, uh, so it, yeah, I think it makes sense that these things that are very deep in our collective consciousness would somehow 
find fruition through science. Um, and interestingly, when I was writing the script, I did it in consultation with a geneticist. And uh, every time I would propose one of these, what I thought were outrageous concepts to him, he would always say, oh, yeah, you could do that. <laughs> Theoretically, it might take a lot of tries and, you know, the technology might have to evolve a little bit. But essentially, the bandwidth of what is possible within the realm of genetics is really broad. And I mean, he described some of the experiments that are common to um, any kind of early stage genetic science program. And they're really outrageous. I mean, things that you can do is um, with a fruit fly, which surprisingly shares a lot of common DNA with human beings. Uh, you can take the gene that um, is responsible for making the eyeball and replicate it. So you get a firefly or excuse me, a fruit fly that has eyeballs all over its body. Oh, wow. And uh, so it's a, it's really interesting. I, I just, I, I became quite obsessed with the whole process of um, the science and the technology behind it, which is not dissimilar from, you know, what you would find in your average kitchen. And it just, it seemed like something that people could do if they had the skill set and the knowledge, it seemed like something that people could do with, you know, rel relatively modest means. And that meant that, you know, there was the possibility of these very young, very intelligent, but perhaps morally unformed scientists going out there and doing some really radical stuff. And, and so, you know, half of the, the one mutation uh, uh, in the film is Dren, um, but the other mutation is Clive and Elsa. I sort of saw them as being kind of, you know, mutant um, mutants in, within their own uh, field. And, and I sort of thought and predicted that that's probably where it's all headed. When it comes to Dren, how many actors played uh, that character? There were two human actors. Um, so Abigail Chu played the child Dren, uh, and she was is a quite an amazing, um, she's now a young lady. <laughs> she was a little girl then, seven years old, um, who was a Wushu martial arts champion. And, and the other was Delphine Chenyak, who played the adolescent to adult Dren and male Dren, um, who we cast out of Paris and was literally the first actor to walk into the room. It was, it was, there was a lot of serendipity and, you know, for lack of a better term, fate involved in the process of making the movie. And that, that was definitely one of them. Delphine was kind of, I thought she was born to play the part. There was no one else that could do it. Is she as striking in person as she is in her photographs? Oh, yes. <laughs> no, she, she really is. She has a quality to her. Um, it's a wonderful blend of something that's feral and innocent and gentle and dangerous. And um, she's a lovely person to begin with, but she has a, I think she has a star quality to her. And I just knew the minute she walked in the room, I was like, that's Dren. <laughs> we had, we had to, you know, look at another, I don't know how many, 50 other girls just to be sure. But, uh, but really it was always going to be Delphine. The final version of Dren, the more male version, was that an actor or was that completely computer generated? Uh, no, that was Delphine. Really? Yeah. She had a prosthetic. Uh, and in the shots that, that in some shots, uh, we used a male actor for the, some of the wider shots where there are certain anatomical issues that, um, came into play. 
but um, but I would say it's 80% Delphine in the movie. And she actually <laughs> looked a little more masculine than the guy we cast. <laughs> <laughs> she could really change her body. The way she held herself and used certain muscles, she could actually change her appearance quite radically. It was, it was quite amazing. I'm always impressed by the way that she moves, especially when it comes to the way that she walks. Even when you're not seeing her legs, which are, you know probably more computer generated, but just to see the way that she moves her body as if she had those types of legs. We did a lot of R and D with that actually, um, because there's a certain mathematical formula to those legs in terms of the proportion of the, um, uh, the segments and the joints and so on. And, and they had to, in order for her movement to be elegant, they had to be of a certain proportion. And we realized early on that we were, we definitely wanted to keep her feet on the ground. We didn't want to put her in stilts or funny shoes or anything like that because I had done some experiments. I actually, in the early stages, had almost made the film with another producer and had gone so far as to shoot a very detailed, fully rendered version of Dren with um, another actor. And we put her in big, heavy boots to get those legs. And uh, it was it actually was a pretty impressive test, but it it, it was obvious that the more we inhibited her natural movement, the clunkier it looked. So, um, so yes, so no, sorry, long story short, there was a, a lot of R&D done into the legs and, and Delphine, you know, spent quite a bit of time working on Dren's movements on her own. When it came to some of those uh, body shots where her legs are not hers, how, how did you guys do that? How were the effects done? Well, yes, her legs are never her own um, from the thigh up. They are hers, but everything else is whenever you see them, it's always a, a digital effect. And, um, and it's simply that it's, they're just animated, tracked onto her body. Um, very, they were based on a sculpture done by a very talented sculptor named Thomas uh, Zarnaby, who did all of this. Well, most of the sculpts in the film. And, um, but they were based on a cast of Delphine's legs. So they attached to her body perfectly. Uh, but it was, it was complicated. Like for instance, when she, Heels down, we calculated that the angle of her legs was something like 15% different than her natural legs would be. So she had special padding on her thighs to displace the material in her dress um, to the position exactly where they would be if she, for her artificial legs. So it was, it was very, I have to say, we, we put a tremendous amount of, of work into making sure that things worked anatomically. That sounds amazing. Just the, the amount of effort that you guys put into it. it. It was it was it was fun. I mean, it was it was very much you know like making Dren. <laughs> it was it was a little bit of life imitating art. When it comes to her eyes, was that just a did did you computer um, like space those apart or how was that done? Yes, the same thing. And this is where we were at the time going into terrain that hadn't really been uh, mapped out yet. So. I mean, we spent a substantial amount of money just in R&D to work out the stuff and to write the software and core digital pictures who were responsible for all of the adult Dren work really did some amazing pioneering work. Um, and, and so they developed a software where actually in real time you could change the shape of her face. I could sit down with a computer animator and once they had tracked the um, movement onto uh, Delphine's face, or once she, they tracked her face's movement, then 
in real time I could adjust her features. It was pretty. It was pretty amazing. And what was really strange about it was after doing that for a long time and working with Dren a long time, when I would flip back to the real Delphine, she looked deformed to me. She looked very strange with her eyes back to where they belong. She looked subnormal. <laughs> no offense to Delphine. She's a very beautiful woman. But it, it, there was something about um, Dren's eyes. That was, yeah, it was very special. Uh, it, I, I became very comfortable with the way she looked. Too comfortable. How many of the effects um, were practical versus uh, computer-generated? It would be hard for me to give you a percentage exactly. Uh, all, I could tell you that the very first stage, the, the sort of um, very uh, pod-like thing that uh, is pulled out of the birthing machine was completely physical. Uh, and Baby Dren, the very first um, stage that has legs and so on, was whenever you saw it moving, it was uh, digital when you saw it lying on a table asleep, for instance, it was a sculpt. Um, it was practical. And, and then there was the toddler stage, which is the next one in line that was uh, fully digital. And then when we got to child Dren, which was Abigail, that, that, from that point onward, Dren was a hybrid of, of digital and uh, performer. Was there anything that you shot that ended up not making it into the final film? We did shoot... Um, K and B did, uh, the creature effects and, um, we did, they built a fully articulated toddler puppet. And there was a scene that we scripted where, and shot where her arms come out of her back. So she begins kind of like a, she looks a little bit like a chicken, you know, she's, she has no arms. And, and what Cliven also realizes is that the arms are actually forming subcutaneously and, and then in a, a particular scene where Elsa is leaving the lab, Dren is so upset she goes over and her arms break out of her back. And we had we tried to do that practically with limited success. Um, and then at the editing stage, we were just so wildly over budget. Uh, that was the first scene I cut. Because that scene alone was like a half a million dollars worth of visual effects work. So it just immediately went away. I know this question could be one of the worst questions you can get asked, so uh, forgive me. How do you feel about the film now that you've completed it? Was it really did did what ended up on screen? Was that what you wanted to make? Yeah, yeah. As much as you know, Dren was the creature that Cliven also wanted to make. Like it sort of, in some ways, it surpassed my expectations. In other ways, it subverted my expectations. But um, and I can never judge my own. Films. I mean, it's. I've, I haven't. I haven't seen in quite a while, so I don't know how I'd respond right now. But it, I must say, I never at any point felt that the film was creatively compromised. It was absolutely the movie I wanted to make. I feel I've been very lucky that way. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I haven't had a stellar career in terms of box office, but um, but every one of my films have been made virtually without any creative interference, and Splice was. Um, very much uh, an example of that, and and so I really got to do what I wanted to do, and and I thought everyone came in with their A game, and the actors were magnificent, and I'm quite proud of the way the movie looks, and I thought Dren as a creation was entirely successful. So I, you know, I feel good. Like I really felt like, well, after Splice, you, you could run over me with a truck, and I would have been satisfied with my life. 
because that was a film I wanted very, you know, that was supposed to be my follow-up to Cube, my first movie. And, and it was in, intensely frustrating to me that I, it took me so long to get it made. So when I finally did it, it was hard for me to believe actually that it happened. It was such a, it was a very painful, difficult film to make, but it was, it was sort of beyond my wildest expectations that it would actually ever get done. So, uh, and released. <laughs> there's, there's a whole story behind how Splice actually got distributed. Um, it was not a foregone conclusion that it was going to go into movie theaters. So it was every step of the way, it was very, very difficult, but uh, the results were always worth the effort and surprisingly rewarding. Was it slated at one time for just DVD release or what was going on with that? It's kind of a fun story. I think it's a good story to relate for anyone out there who aspires to do this because what I've discovered is very often the worst things have to happen in order for the best things to happen. So, um, and what I mean by that is initially when Splice was financed, it was made with um, a very old and well-known French studio called Gaumont, um, who actually I've been working with recently on the TV series Hannibal. And uh, so, you know, they've been, they're actually the oldest film studio in the world. Uh, and how they got involved is a whole other story. But, uh, but Gomez is often thought of as, as an old lady in that uh, she's quite reliable, but you have to treat her gently and she takes her time. And with Splice, getting them to say yes was a very convoluted, lengthy, difficult process. And, but one of the caveats that they had in order for them to say yes was they needed to have a U.S. distributor on board. And uh, we almost had Fox, but then the legal department at Fox saw our trend designs and said, oh, it looks too much like Avatar. <laughs> oh, jeez. And this was before Avatar came out. Um, and even James, Cam- I mean, James Cameron even wrote a letter to them saying, no, no, it doesn't look like Avatar, but it didn't matter. They would have... They didn't want to have anything to do with it at that point. So uh, they were our only real takers on the project. They had uh, no one at that point. And then a, a German company called Senator decided that they were going to open an American distribution company. And so they came on board. Um, but I knew that that was, I just had a very bad feeling about it. And uh, because they had no track record and, I just didn't know how legitimate it was, it was going to be. But in order to get the film made, that's what was required. So they signed a deal with Senator, and we shot the film. And sure enough, by the time the movie was more or less complete, Senator was about to go into bankruptcy. And so I had this horrible vision of my movie being trapped in some kind of bankruptcy legal battle. Um, but fortunately, Senator somehow opted out and we got the movie back just in time for the financial collapse. And at that point, nobody was buying movies. I mean, you couldn't, not only, not only were people not buying movies, you couldn't even give a movie away. Uh, it was just, in fact, the only way to get a film distributed at that point in the States was to come with all of your p money, meaning your um publicity and advertising money. And so uh, we had one taker at that point, which was MGM. And, uh, and Gaumont was putting together, I think they had actually put together a $20 million fund to release the film. 
And, but there were issues with the MGM deal. And I kept pushing going like, you got to sign it. You got to sign it. It's going to, they're going to back out um, if you don't do it. And sure enough, um, MGM went uh, bust. (laughs) So in fact, it was a good thing that we didn't sign with them. Then Sony was interested in partnership with, um, I think it was Bob Bernie's company, I think. I hope I'm remembering this correctly. And and again, Goman was dragging their heels. And we're talking at least five months have passed since the film was first shown in Cannes, um, in the market in Cannes. And my wife always says, you know, movies are like sushi. After a while, they start to smell. So um, I just knew this wasn't good. And I knew they had to get this deal done. And we, by some um, good fortune, got into Sundance. And so I, I was pressuring Gaumont to sign the deal before we screened at Sundance. Because who knows? I had no idea how people would respond to the movie at Sundance. They could, it could have gotten a dis, you know disastrous reviews and that would have killed the deal. So I... I was pushing like mad for them to do it and they didn't do it. <laughs> Screen the movie at Sundance. And then by some bizarre fluke, someone who worked with Joel Silver saw the movie and liked it a lot. And Joel Silver is, uh, you know, one of the better known producers in Hollywood and had a, um, his own shingle at Warner brothers called dark castle. And although Joel Silver has never, at least certainly until that point, had ever bought a movie, um, he decided he wanted to buy it and release it through Dark Castle. Uh, otherwise, we, we, if we had known he was interested, we would have shown it to him. Um, so, so just by pure dumb luck, he picked it up um, and was going to distribute it with Warner Brothers, you know, 2,000 screens. And it was like my dream had come true. So, but that, would on, that only happened because Goma was so stubborn and we're making what, what what was at the time, in my opinion, all the wrong decisions. But obviously they weren't. I guess multiple wrongs made a right in that case. Yeah, it happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you just never know. I mean, it's the William Goldman thing. You just nobody knows anything. So so frequently I've been in situations where it feels like something catastrophic is going to happen, and yet in in retrospect, it turns out that without that catastrophic event, the best possible result would never have happened. You know, I was going to ask you if the idea of, you know, genetic tinkering and all that stuff like you had with Ryan, if that actually scares you. But hearing now that you worked with this geneticist, did anything that they say kind of scare you even more than what you were picturing with Ren? No, because I love the geneticists are wonderful people, that at least the ones that I met. I mean, they're all they do it for the same reasons that I want to make movies, because they're very passionate about their science and um, you know, they don't make a lot of money doing what they're doing and uh, they're really smart. And no, it was a very, it, it would actually made me feel more comfortable about it because I felt like these are really great people and they're generally speaking, they're dedicated to fighting disease. I'm sure there's a, uh, you know, there's a cabal of evil geneticists out there. Somewhere I haven't met, but the ones I met were great. And, and in fact, um, Sort of in the in the later stages of uh, prepping Splice, I was spending time at different labs here in Toronto, and I walked into one lab and I saw this guy, and he had a a T-shirt on that said "Born to Clone," and he was like this handsome young guy, and I was like, "I need to talk to you." 
<laughs> and he, his name is George Sharams, and he's in the movie. He ended up being our consultant, and um, he has he's has a background part in the film. But he brought a number of his geneticist friends. So a lot of a lot of the uh, scientists that you see in Clive and Elsa's lab are actually real geneticists. And uh, you know, yeah. So it was it was great. It was really um, it, so. Oh, sorry, I'm not really answering your question. So no, the science doesn't scare me necessarily actually no it it excites me i think it's and it's inevitable i mean there's no point in being scared by it because it's not going to go away it's going to i mean it's 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 i'm sure it's the next industrial frontier i'm sure that's where our attention is going to be for the next 50 years or so speaking of t-shirts i love clive's collection of different t-shirts and just the the look of the feel the you know that awesome anime picture above their bed and everything. There's so many nice touches when it comes to that. Yeah, I love, I mean, I loved Clive and Elsa as, as characters. I really had a tremendous affection for them, even though they do completely abhorrent things. I always personally maintained a lot of sympathy for them, and I thought they were courageous. And again, I, I likened them to independent filmmakers or, you know, like they belong to an indie band. They're just very... Uh, audacious and fearless and they made mistakes but they were honest mistakes um so i yeah i I, and and they're flamboyant and and uh charismatic and and fun so yeah i loved work i loved entering that world that was a really outside of just the the monster stuff the human scientific world was really a, a fun place to visit so last time we talked, you were working on a couple things. Um, you had just done, or were working on ABCs of Death, uh, part two. Now you said you've been doing a lot of work on Hannibal. Is that for the season that just ended, the one coming up, or both? I did two episodes from season two, and I've, I'm literally, I was just shooting today, finishing off the my fourth episode for season three. Um, so yeah, really, that's been a magnificent experience. I I really adore that show, and feel very lucky to have participated in it. It's, it's just, uh, <laughs> it, it feels very comfortable. The actors, the caliber of actors on that show are just amazing. And they're wonderful to work with. It, it's such, it is a, I've been very lucky with the actors I've worked with uh, overall. And um, I mean, both, both Hugh Dancy and Mads Mikkelsen are just magnet, lovely, lovely people. They're just salt of the earth there. And they're so brilliant. Uh, and everyone else. I mean, Jillian Anderson and Lawrence Fishburne. And I mean, it's uh, I, every day I go in there. I can't. I have to pinch myself. Go. Oh yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm working with Lawrence Fishburne today. Now I know um, High Rise is not on your plate anymore. Are you still uh, hoping that Neuromancer comes together? I'm hoping. I don't hold. I don't have much hope anymore. I, I really have no idea. It, it's. I got to say, it's been those two projects have been crushing uh, for me because I. I spent 10 years working on High Rise, and that didn't happen. Um, although I must say, I'm, I'm genuinely, as painful as it is for me, I'm genuinely excited to see Ben Wheatley's High Rise. Um, but, uh, but it should have been my High Rise. <laughs> 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 so that hurt. And then, uh, and then Neuromancer is, I shouldn't even, I shouldn't really even speak about it. But it, there are things going on with it. Politically, that are entirely outside of my control, that make me want to assume it's not going to happen. But you never know. 
I also heard your name attached to a project called Theorem. Is that still happening? Oh, Theorem is a, a script of mine uh, I've had for years, and it just, I, you know, I'd love to do it. It kind of comes and goes. Sometimes people want to make it, and then they don't make it. <laughs> <laughs> so it could, it could happen. It's, it's, a very, it's a very cool script, and um, yeah, it's, I'd, I'd love to do it. Or, or have someone else do it. I mean, I've also flirted with giving it to other directors, too. Yeah, I was going to ask, is that one of those scripts where you can like sell it, and then a few years later you get it back, and then you sell it again <laughs> kind of thing? Uh, no, it hasn't been that lucrative for me. Oh, okay. Yeah, All right. <laughs> I wanted it to be one of those, but no. But it's, it is of that ilk. I mean, I definitely could imagine someone making the movie. The problem is we're in this um, odd place right now where – you have to make, if, especially if you're working within the z- zone of a horror film, you have to make your film for, well, really under $5 million. Um, there, there are occasionally ways that you could go beyond that. I'm trying to right now with another project, but it's, it, the market's just evolved or devolved to, in such a way that that's just what it'll support if you're doing the film independently. If, and studios are you know, outside the Jason Blum model really they're just making tentpole films so it's and there's just nothing in between and a movie like theorem theorem i really wanted to do i mean when i originally budgeted it was like a 20 million dollar movie um probably could be a 15 million dollar film but it just it's always it's been outside the parameters of what the market will support so uh so that's the the biggest reason why i think it hasn't happened yet but that's that. I mean, that's why Splice again is just such a, a miracle. You know, it it was the last of those kinds of movies, an independent film that cost twenty five million. That would, unless I had Mark Wahlberg or you know someone like a, an actor who's like a huge international star, uh, that just wouldn't be possible. I couldn't. There's no way I could do it. We need you to uh, do like you know, Vincenzo Natale's The Inhumans, the next Marvel movie or whatever. So then you can. You know, get, get that cash flow going. I'll do anything for $100 million. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, it's hard. I, it's a very odd time. I mean, I, and I like a lot of those movies, but I, that's not exactly what I aspired to. So even the brass ring right now isn't exactly where I would want to be. Perfect world. Um, not to say I wouldn't gladly take on a movie like that if it were offered but it it's an it is just simply this strange time and in, in i must say um at the risk of repeating it, what everyone else is saying it's tv where the most interesting work is being done no it seems to be the way you know so many people that i've talked to it's just they are doing their their thing in tv now and it just uh well it's paying the bills but it's also where they're able to do their most creative work it's really fun. I mean, that's that's been the saving grace is for me anyway. It, it, it's I had a little TV show that I did myself called Darknet um, that was an incredibly fun experience and once again done with no creative oversight. Then <laughs> it's on Netflix now and has been doing really well on Netflix. And uh, I'm hope, hopeful that we'll get another season. And then working on Hannibal as well. It's just. Um, it's it's demanded upon the directors of that show that they do something that is not TV or that's not what is, you know, we typically think of as being like television. He, you know, Brian Fuller wants cinema 
and and to some degree he wants avant-garde cinema he wants crazy stuff so it's it's just it's great it's uh and you get paid to do it which <laughs> in the independent film world is is really uh it's hard to survive making independent films once you amortize the time that you spend making a movie versus what you're paid to do it it's you really can't survive Wow, I made $5 an hour if you were like count all this stuff together, right? <laughs> I have to say on Splice, we calculated that on a per hour basis, the person who made the most money on that movie was the Jenny operator. That's not a joke. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, there you go. Well, hey, thank you so much. This has been great. It's always so nice to talk to you. Oh, oh you too, Mike. It's, it, thank you for the opportunity. It's, I, of course, as you can tell, it's a subject I have. Uh, I take a lot of pleasure in talking about well, it's such a great movie, you know, and it still just holds up. I rewatched it this morning um, in preparation, and it's it, it just it works on every level. And I love the way I love the whole idea of um, Elsa. Well, oh, both of them are flawed characters, you know, but the whole idea of Elsa with the nature versus nurture kind of thing, and she's such a great female character, great character period, but then a great female character and you don't get enough of those. So that whole idea of her and what she's doing with Dren and reenacting some of the shit that her mom did. I mean, it's just so many good things happening in this film. Oh, thank you. That's so nice to hear. Yeah. It really, it's much like with cube, which was a movie where I felt like I, I didn't really, uh, invent it as much as I stumbled upon it. Um, splice was the same thing. I felt I kind of, you know, just almost by chance, opened a door into this world and it was just so it was exploding with potential that actually was the hardest thing about writing splice was just honing it into being one thing as opposed to 20 yeah well yeah and you've got little seeds of different ideas but it's not one of those where you're just like oh man you know this guy had too many ideas and just wasn't able to concentrate on you know it's not like a, a zardoz where it's just stuffed full of so many ideas and you're just like oh my god pick one you know but you can see the uh, the seeds in there so you can spin them on your own and you still have that nice clear line through the entire film Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, it's in its credit to Antoinette and also to Doug Taylor, the other writers. It took. I think what we realized was, you know, fundamentally, it was a story of family. It was it was a parenting story, and and once once that was decided as the central notion of the film, everything else fell into place. But uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a in terms of just the general subject matter. I mean, it'll become its own subgenre. There's I'm sure any number of films that are dealing with this now, and it's there's just a lot of floor. Well, thank you again, sir. I know you're busy, so I appreciate your time today. This has been great. <laughs> thank you so much, Mike. It's good to hear from you. And hey, best of luck with any of your future projects, all of your stuff. So if you need any help with anything, just let me know. Oh, thank you. Well, no, let's just stay in touch, and God willing, there'll be one or two things coming down the pike soon. <laughs> all right, sir. All right, take care. Take care. All right, we're back, and we're talking about Splice. Thanks to Vincenzo Natale for joining us again. You've heard him on our show before. If not, check out our episode on his film Cube, and also when he sat down to talk Blue Velvet and The Devils with us. You can get those episodes through our archives over at iTunes or at projection-booth.com. So we've brought up a few other films as we've been talking about this one, Jurassic Park, The Fly, 
I don't even know what other ones are out there as far as what might be similar to this. Frankenstein, of course. So are there other films that kind of share in this same universe? Uh, the science gone mad or maybe even parenting gone mad? What do you think, Rob? If we want to take the science gone mad, I think the last great era of science gone mad movies was in the 50s. And the whole fear, you know, in the atomic era. So there's all that, you know, like, which we did, uh, the brain that wouldn't die and, and stuff like that. Just the idea of mad scientists. Undead. Despised. Living like an animal. The jungle is my home. That I will show the world that I can be its master. I will perfect my own race of people. A race of atomic supermen which will conquer the world. <laughs> and there is part of me that uh, when I watch something like Splice and being a big fan of science, I just go, oh, God, this is like, this is hard to watch. This is like, I guess, like if someone who is a really religious person is watching a movie where like the religious characters are horrible, you're just like, ah, you know, I, I, I kind of get that feeling when I watch this because I want to believe that science helps us. It's, uh, it's not here to hurt us and make us uh, horrible. As a true life lab rat, Jamie, what did you think about it? <laughs> well, I, there's that part of me who gets really excited with the, with, the possibility of what you can do. But then there's a part of me that's really frightened with the possibility of what you can do. And I think if I've learned anything from all the myriad of films that I've watched over the years, it's, you probably shouldn't. And uh, (laughs) I would bring up pretty much uh, any Cronenberg film, you know, just, well, okay, maybe not any, well, you know, rabid um, that's science um, the Fly, of course, is his remake of that is sciency, and then, um, well, I mean, all of his early stuff could kind of fit into this. Where people, um, what's the, what's the one with the slugs? Shivers. Shivers. Um, yeah, that's that started out as a medical thing, and I don't think no one really does it quite like he does. And but this comes pretty close. This comes pretty close, and it gives me that same. Ooey gooey feeling that uh, on the on the insides that's a technical term um, <laughs> that the implications of what you of what can happen if you start messing around so there was something else oh um, scanners too you know it was sort of like a, that was like his th- throwback to like thalidomide and um, you know what can happen if you start messing around with things so um yeah i think if people out there if if there are listeners out there of yours who aren't familiar with cronenberg's work but they like this film then i would suggest to them that they seek out some cronenberg because um it's a lot of his stuff is right in the same vein and he's my favorite very cool yeah, I can't really think of any other uh, films beyond the ones that you guys mentioned. Yeah, I'm trying to think of just, I mean, you already brought up Eraserhead, and there's a lot of good kind of body horror type thing uh, to come up with that. I would say, you know, Alien was some of the, um, just that kind of science gone mad, and the whole idea, too, of we're going to examine this stuff. I mean, not necessarily Alien, but just the way that the Aliens franchise has kind of evolved and this whole fascination 
with the creature and the whole idea of trying to um, weaponize the the technology, the the biomechanics of the creature. I think that kind of plays into it, and just that whole idea of you know being um, being too terrible to to live basically <laughs> i don't know it's sometimes i got a little bit of of feeling of like um the thing <clears throat> pardon me like when you're talking about what's the worst that could happen and the um the the kind of uh hp lovecraft uh world that could happen after that i was thinking of the thing and and that's kind of inspired by lovecraft as well and the whole idea of the um creature that can change its body so easily and be able to uh, penetrate into the world um, so simply. And then, Rob, I was thinking of uh, our old friend Possession as far as the um, the creature that is kind of Isabella Johnny's baby, but also her lover at the same time. So I really kind of got that vibe, too, especially because that's a lot of uh, like tentacle sex kind of stuff. Hot. <laughs> well, there's also, um, if you, you want to talk Oedipal, there's like Sleepwalkers, um, yeah, which is not a great film <laughs> by any means, but there's some blurry lines between mother-son going on there. Psycho. Yeah, isn't there a little bit of that in Hellraiser as well? It's been a long time since I've seen Hellraiser. I know there's, it's like an uncle or something there's in that some, one. Well, it's it's mainly stepmother, father, and uncle love triangle going on there. Um, there is a scene. There's uh, there's kind of a creepy scene where the uncle gets a little. Um, hmm. He just gets a little creepy with it with his niece. Nothing actually happens, but he's like, you know, um, I don't know. He makes my skin crawl. And you're like, I wouldn't leave her alone with him too long. Yeah, <laughs> he's that uncle that you don't ever, <laughs> you don't ever let the kids in the room alone with him when he comes over. That's special. Yeah, <laughs> Uncle Ernie. Yep, I've got one of those uncles. I'm sorry. It's okay. So, did you want to talk about this biotech century thing? Yeah, when I was watching this movie this time, I don't think I really thought about it um, when I saw it in theater was in the late 90s, there was a book by Jeremy Rifkin, who's a philosopher. He wrote this book called Biotech Century. And what he talks about in the book is how biotechnology will be the next thing that will sort of invade all of our lives and we're going to have to kind of wrestle with it in terms of what it means for like cloning and and you know building these uh, creatures and things like this in this way and and I was thinking about it in reference to how in the first part of the film we're introduced to the two creatures that they've created that like I said don't really have human form so those don't bother us that much like we're actually I, I think we're willing to kind of accept those but then when we get to the Dren creature it becomes very personal because we can see a face and we can get you know into the fact that they have personality and things like that and one of the things that he was talking about in the book is that, and, and I know we can do it uh, currently with like organs, where they can uh, generate organs in the lab and they've been working on those kind of things. But he was talking about how it would be possible and ethically um, there's sort of this side issue where if you could create a copy of yourself and basically kind of like have it on ice and then harvest the organs from it as you know yours fall apart, 
but to create without a head. And it kind of mm-hmm. gave you this, you know, whole aspect of what we were talking about in here where these creatures over here are okay because they don't, uh, we don't think they have personalities or understand higher function and ideas. And it just kind of reminded me of this book and a lot of the things that he brings up in this book called The Biotech Century about what kind of uh, philosophical and ethical questions we're going to have to start asking ourselves that we haven't yet. Yeah. I might be as sexy as Ewan McGregor, but I don't want my Ewan McGregor clone that's running around on the island to come after me because it's going to be too hard to kill this guy because he's going to have my face. But you're right. If he had no head and was walking around, it'd be much easier to kill him. There you go. Yeah, especially because he'd be bumping into things and he'd be easy to catch. (laughs) <laughs> but now my question is is you know would there be a way to create it so that it grows without a head or do you have to create an entire human and then remove the head which could be kind of a horrible thing he made it sound like it could be engineered to without be created it. without one okay yeah. so basically it's just a tissue farm yeah uh, like a human tissue farm interesting and I don't know how much of it still holds up because the book was uh, printed in 1998. And as we know, science moves pretty fast and things change mm-hmm. pretty quick. So um, I don't know if it's outdated. I don't know if he's updated it since. But I just know that it was an interesting read when I read it back in the late 90s. And you're right about the And, you know, I mean, there are things that we can, yeah, currently do with organs and stuff. But I, I just, um, I don't know if morally people would ever be comfortable with having a headless body suspended somewhere. Um, I, I just, the public is an interesting thing to deal with. And it's like some, it's, you have to find a perfect balance between what people are okay with and what they're going to have issue with. And I don't know. I, I think it'd probably be pretty far down the road before people were willing on, on the whole to accept something like that. Cause it's kind of creepy. But I guess, you know, hey, what happens if you lose, like, you chop off a finger? Well, <laughs> I got one. <laughs> He's over here. I haven't seen, well, that's uh, that's Iron Man 3 right there. You <laughs> chop off a finger. You have Guy Pierce help you grow it back. But just be careful because you might turn into a giant fireball. <laughs> I've, I know that there has been a real glut of documentaries about how our food is basically killing us. Things like King Corn or Forks Over Knives, uh, Food Inc., these kind of things. I'm not sure. I've only seen a few of these. Is there a documentary out there that talks about GMOs, um, gene- genetically modified organisms, that much? Or has that one been suppressed by like Monsanto? Well, whenever we talk about GMOs, it's usually just food. We're never like I've never heard anyone come out and go, "Oh, we shouldn't have hybrid plants or you know hybrid animals for these other things." It, it seems more like a question of, "Are you creating them so we can have food, and what does that mean?" Versus anyone just I, I think getting upset over you know genetic recombination and doing things in a lab. It's either that or they don't know anything about that stuff because it's too nerdy. Did you know that ligers are bred for their skills in magic? It's pretty much my favorite animal. <laughs> yeah. Um, got mad bow staff I'm... skills, too, by the way. Can you bring me my chapstick? No, Napoleon. But my lips hurt real bad. Just borrow some from the school nurse. I know she has, like, five sticks in her drawer. I'm not going to use hers, you sicko. See ya. Oh, 
idiot. I was just curious because I know that, you know, there are so many bad things going on in the world as far as um, GMO, the food, and all this stuff. I remember specifically when one farmer, he uh, created a hybrid of a tomato and a tobacco plant, and he called it the tomacco. And that was terrible. People became addicted to these things, and just it caused riots. It was really, really bad stuff. So I don't know if we have had you know real investigative um, looks at these kind of things. I, I think you're getting confused. Isn't that like the seventh film in the Attack of the Killer Tomato series? It's actually a Simpsons episode, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I, we've talked a little bit about some of the... I don't know, possible implausibilities of the film. But for me, it's scary because I can see some of it being true. And I've really been kind of floored, like looking around at some of the reviews of the film of Splice and seeing some really bad reviews of it out there. Richard Roper gave this film a, a D plus wow. and just seeing some of the comments on his review of it. I'm just like, okay, really? Like people are just like all about like, Oh, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just read a little bit here. Um, <clears throat> they're told early on that their lab is being shut down and all the funding will be directed towards phase two. So what happens? The project continues with no one, no security cams, nothing watching as they continue their experiments for days and days, making idiotic, nonsensical decisions along the way. And it's just like all these things, like picking apart, like how their lab is left alone and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> but the only, yeah, just, the only implausibility for me was when they were trying to hide her in various places in the building. I was just sort of like, come on, guys. It's like somebody's going to find out what you're doing. And the I, I, I sort of saw it as a cheat was the fact that the lab technician is his brother and he's the one outside of them who stumbles upon her. And I'm like, okay, well, then he can get buy-in because it's his brother. And it, he's like, you're not going to tell him you know, okay. Because if it was just some other geek on the street, it'd be like, I'm going to the bosses. I don't know what the fuck just jumped down from the ceiling on top of me, but you all are done. I'm telling. Yeah, so it seemed, <laughs> it seemed like a device that was needed in the plot in order to make it work. So that that way, when that scene happens... And she does stumble upon someone who isn't them. It it can be easily moved on without leading to some giant subplot about we found out about you before we found mm-hmm. out about you later. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you because they have that whole conversation about you know I'm just going to put her in the storage closet and he's like and he's like what if they because they're going to be doing renovations what if they find her and she's like oh what are they going to re- renovate the storage closet are they going to put in like you know state of the art mop racks or something like that um so they have that conversation and the meanwhile the whole time i'm going that doesn't seem like a very good idea to me um but in reality though labs pretty much are left alone the big wigs and the higher ups they're not typically not even scientists they don't care they don't know what the hell's going on there they didn't they wouldn't know what to do with it if you put it in front of them and said do something with it they wouldn't know so they don't generally bother with it they just like they give them the money, they tell them what they want the end result to be, and then, you know, they don't have anything to do with it. So, I mean, I think it's purely believable that you could get away with doing something like that as long as you had a good place to do it. And, like, I don't think the broom closet is a good place to keep her. But, um, 
you know, and as far as like, I do think it's a cheat that his brother is the one <laughs> that happens to find it. Um, cause you kind of know somebody's going to run across that. But as far as like the pharmaceutical people, I find it totally believable. They just leave them alone and let them do their thing. As long as they're getting the results that they want, they're not going to mess with you. You know, they throw money at you and you give them the results they look for and they see no reason to bother with you. Typically, in my experience, that's how it works. Well, I've invented a pill that gives worms to ex-girlfriends. Right, and, and what's positive about that? Well, it's a pill that gives worms to ex-girlfriends. Well, could it also give worms to ex-boyfriends? This is a drug for the world to give worms to ex-girlfriends. Well, great. Thanks for stopping by. You just don't get it here. Yeah, those pharmaceutical people, they can be really dangerous. I mean, there was one company called Devlin McGregor that actually had this doctor's wife killed because he wouldn't go along with the whole idea of the test results for this heart medication that they were putting out on the market. So they sent this guy to jail. This one-armed man came in and killed the wife, framed him for murder. It took a long time for him to escape from prison and make it back to Chicago and get his name cleared. But luckily that happened. It was a big deal. Yeah. It was a big deal. They were looking for every farmhouse, outhouse, hen house. Hen house. Yeah. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Yeah. And Tommy, I, and I when think Tommy they, Lee Jones gets involved, man. Yeah, you don't want to mess with a guy from Texas with that accent. They, <laughs> you know, they're serious. They ain't messing around. Don't mess with Texas. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. In the basement of one of the country's leading medical schools, Dr. Edward Jessup, candidate for a Nobel Prize, is conducting the most dangerous experiment in the history of science. And the subject of the experiment is himself. Ask him what kind of an experience I can expect. What happens during these blackout periods is you get the feeling of phenomenal acceleration, like you're being shot out over millions, billions of years. Time simply obliterates. You guys are shooting up with an untested drug that stacks up in the brain and works in the nucleus of the cell, and you don't call that dangerous. Now, I'm asking you to put the experiment off until we understand a little more in order to minimize the risk. I'm really frightened. We could be screwing around with this whole genetic structure. Now, how do we stop this? We've got millions of years stored away in that computer bank we call our minds. We have got trillions of dormant genes in us, our whole evolutionary past. Perhaps I've tapped into that. He may be on to something that is beyond our own comprehension. Now, because I believe him, I want this thing stopped. The hell is that? You okay? If you love me, if you love me, Eddie, Altered States.
That's right. Next week, we turn the projection booth into a sensory deprivation tank, and we talk about Ken Russell's Altered States. It's another case of science gone wild. Before we go, we want to talk to our co-host this week, the scientist gone wild, Jamie Jenkins, from... I don't want to list all the shows that Rob listed earlier. So from many podcasts, including Devour the Podcast, what has been happening in your world lately? Are you still podcasting like a fiend? Uh, not as much like a fiend as I used to. Uh, Devour has dropped to every other week rather than weekly. And uh, Skeleton Crew has dropped to only once a month. So my schedule has freed up a little bit as far as that goes. But um, right now we're on Devour. We're coming toward the end of our Friday the Thirteenth retrospective, where we've we have just finished covering Jason Goes to Hell. So we're getting uh, we're nearing the end of that one, and uh, we just had Friday the Thirteenth all over the place. On the Skeleton Crew, we just released our 103rd episode, which also was our three-year anniversary episode, in which we discussed. 3D movies on the whole with a big, long, giant discussion specifically about Friday the 13th Part 3, which, of course, was released in 3D. A lot of threes in there, if you haven't picked up on that. And then uh, with Evil Episodes, we're doing our thing where we talk about uh, we, we talk about horror on television. And uh, on that, we also just recently covered the Detroit-filmed It Follows. Which, if uh, people out there have not seen it, I, I really highly recommend it. And especially if you're from the Detroit area, it'll feel like home. I didn't know that film was shot in Detroit until yesterday. Really? Have you seen yeah. it yet? I have not seen it yet. I, didn't, I really enjoyed it. And I didn't know going in. I went to the theater in Royal Oak to see it. It was playing at the Landmark royal oak several weeks ago before it had the wide release it had the semi-wide release and uh, we headed out there to see it and right in the very beginning i was like i think that's a michigan license plate and then um a few minutes later brian's like this kind of looks like my old neighborhood and then a few minutes after that there was like a big 12 mile road sign so i'm like it is detroit so um that was kind of it was exciting you know uh but overall it's just a uh it's a really worthwhile film. I enjoy it quite a bit. Very original. Very well done. And local filmmaker. Very cool. Well, thanks again, Jamie. And thanks to this week's special guest, Vincenzo Natale. You can find out more about his work and other appearances on the show, as we told you about, and the film at our website, projection-booth.com. Also, while you're there, feel free to leave us some feedback if you've enjoyed the show. And obviously you have because you're listening this far. Um, why not go over to iTunes or wherever you get your quality projection booth downloads or listening through streaming or whatever it is and leave a review because that's important to uh, us here in uh, projection booth land and now guys i have an idea like who doesn't love giraffes i mean they're really cool but they're too damn big so uh what if we splice a giraffe with like a small dog and then we can have like a tiny giraffe around the home what do you think of that i'd rather have a pot-bellied elephant imagine a pint-sized elephant that you could keep in the house children we could make a fortune with this. You hear that, dude? We'll be rich! Forget about all that genetic engineering hoosa fudge. If you want to combine a pig and an elephant, just get them to make sweet love. Are an elephant kind of pot-bellied by nature? What's <laughs> <laughs> a miniature elephant. If you had a little mini giraffe, you'd have to be careful of your houseplants, because uh, it would just go around eating all your houseplants. <laughs>
Swimming topless in chlorine off morphine. Emails on iPads, don't answer when phone rings. Text message full coming down on four beans every night, like a bachelor party in Sin City. Bitches sniffing coke off each other titties with roll 50s. Life I live like Charlie Sheen and Rick James. Going hard till ain't a dollar in my name, and it's that triple X shit, nigga. How you feel? Groupies like Glam Rock, poison logo pills. Sniffing Molly off amps with blind hair tramps. When I'm on my way to the stage every night, I rage. It's in my DNA, cause my pops like to get fucked up the same way. It's in my DNA, cause my moms like to get fucked up the same way. DNA, DNA, cause my fam like to get fucked up the same way. DNA, DNA, cause my fam like to get fucked up the same way. Warhols all on the wall of the villa. Add a raw pop and got me jumping to the ceiling. Perceived as a villain, no sentiment in my sentence. For instance, and Vincent, they'll be calling for instance. And Vincent, it's a Remember, these ain't just words. Go from talking shit to organs preserved. You saw serve rappers just hide behind your reverb. And even without effects, you'll end up desert. I research and homework. Make you dig your own dirt on beats buried alive. Rat and wise guys, I'm with a Latin bitch. Fat ass, well proportioned thighs. And love to see you coming, so I squirted in her eyes. I'm hopping off that new shit. Like narcs on Tuesday Grill on it shiny like LL Cool J's What's on my waist can make a nigga meet his doomsday To describe your mixtape, the shit was like a toothache It's in my DNA, cause my pops like to get fucked up the same way 
It's in my DNA, cause my mind's like to get fucked up the same way. DNA, DNA, cause my fam like to get fucked up the same way. DNA, DNA, cause my fam like to get fucked up the same way. Cloning is illegal. This won't be human, not entirely. 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.